0: Mother's Day is just a few weeks away. Get her something exquisite and unforgettable. David Yurman, America's foremost luxury jewelry brand, was started by a sculptor and a painter. Every D.Y. collection features artistic designs executed with the finest craftsmanship and hand-finished details.
1: The David Yurman Mother's Day campaign, forever linked, celebrates the enduring bond between mothers and their children.
0: David Yurman has curated a variety of necklaces, rings, bracelets, and earrings in their online Mother's Day shop at davidyurman.com. Whether it's classic cable designs, personalized amulet pendants, or a stunning Carlisle collection piece, explore heirloom-worthy styles at a variety of price points.
1: There's something for every mom. Modeled by actor Scarlett Johansson and other brand ambassadors, this is jewelry your mother will treasure forever. Discover the selection now at davidjurman.com. <laughs> Happy Saturday. It is April 22nd, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London.
0: And I'm Michael Haney in New York City.
1: Okay, Michael, spring is in full bloom here. You've never seen more beautiful streets, more beautiful trees, and more Union Jack flags. I can't deal with this. It's like the coronation is happening yesterday here. The excitement is in the air. It is all palpable. And I have to tell you, I am not immune to its charms.
0: I just want you to send me some nice coronation swag. I don't know if it's a tea cozy with Charles on it or a little mug with him. And Camilla, but I just want a little something, just a little something, something. Okay, that's all I'm saying.
1: Honey, consider it done. I'm so embarrassed by the amount of coordination tat I have already purchased. It's like, way to spot the new American in town. It's like, he's the one with 42 Charles and Camilla mugs. It's exciting, though, I have to say. It's like, the Queen died like three weeks after I moved to London, and it was just, I felt like I was so hard boiled about the whole thing an American coming here. And then fast forward seven months later, I have been completely bowled over by this country and I'm becoming more of a royalist than many of the people who live here. I'm a complete sucker for this stuff. I'm not afraid to admit it.
0: Well, you're going to have a front row seat for us and we're going to have a lot to talk about in the next couple weeks as the coronation approaches and hear how you're bowled over. But I mean, in terms of being bowled over, I think our show today is it's going to bowl you over because beginning with our very special guest, Graydon Carter, Airmail's co-editor, he will share his sharp eyed take on the Fox News settlement Donald Trump's ever-widening legal sinkhole, Clarence Thomas's money pal, and more. And then, speaking of miscreants and misbehavior, Tarpley Hit will tell us about Charlie Janis, the 31-year-old daughter of a Goldman Sachs banker and why she's the latest millennial to join the ranks of accused mega-fraudsters. And on the subject of millennials, Zach Sokol has the story of a man named David Slay, a.k.a. the millennial Marlboro Man, and how he convinced the government to approve the first new cigarette, for market in 15 years. So if that doesn't bowl you over, Ashley, that doesn't bowl our listeners over, I don't know what will. It's a great show, right?
1: Are we going to start with the grifter, the trial that was not to be, or the smokers?
0: I think we have to start with Rupert Murdoch and Fox News and Graydon and his take on the week that was.
1: Okay, Mike, we can't put Graydon in the same company as Fox News and Rupert Murdoch. He stands alone. Ladies and gentlemen, Graydon Carter, longtime Trump adversary and the co-editor of Mail. We're so happy to have you. Welcome, Graydon.
2: Hi, Ashley. Hi, Mike. So good to see you. So,
1: Graydon, you start off the issue with a lot of thoughts about Trump and his latest predicament or his latest predicament, shall we say. What went through your mind when you heard the news that the Fox Dominion suit was
2: settled? Well, it's not just about Trump. It's about Fox News and Clarence Thomas and their Two organizations and a man who have done a lot to divide the country right now. But the Fox News thing, it's funny because there'll be a lot of disappointed people out there because I know a number of writers who were covering the trial who had book deals on it. And basically the drama is gone out of that. So I think they'll be disappointed. I think that most First Amendment people are disappointed because they had to fight on the side of somebody a suing a news, I quote unquote news organization. And the law firm that works with Dominion, they're part of a movement to. Weaken in the first amendment and with the way the the supreme court is now that's a danger i'm surprised that fox wasn't forced to give multiple on-air apologies because i think i don't watch fox news but i think if you do you probably don't know this trial happened and you don't know that fox just lost
0: it was fascinating the day that the verdict came down the big story on fox news i looked was the garage collapse in lower manhattan which... <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's national news on fox
0: yeah Well, it's probably some kind of metaphor for how Fox was receiving things. Do you think it ultimately came down to just Rupert, a game of chicken, and he blinked, he was not going to get on the stands and not allow anyone else to get on the stands?
2: Well, according to Mark Bowden, who has a piece for us in this issue, I mean, I think he believes they took one look at that jury. It's Delaware. It's not a very conservative state. And they probably realized they were going to head into trouble. And the judge was quite strict about what Fox could and could not do to defend itself and he'd already sort of brought them up on a number of issues already and i think that they just realized putting rupert on the stand he's 93 if you saw him on the stand during the hacking trials in england he's good at acting giving a mr magoo impersonation when he's testifying because i remember seeing him a couple of weeks after that trial and he was bouncing around like harry styles so he's a good actor He's a great newspaper man and a good actor.
0: He managed to change wives again, or at least fiancés during the whole time, too. So. During the trial. It's incredible, yes. Yeah. So you mentioned a minute ago, I mean, I want to make sure we get in the breadth of this wonderful essay you have this week. It, you've touched on Clarence Thomas and Trump. And I mean, as you mentioned, it's no wonder that it's a, it's a week of miscreance and misbehavior. I mean, give us your thoughts on how those two guys intersect with the week that was.
2: Well, it's funny because my wife and I, we spent a lot of time talking and just the sort of low Outrage at the fact that there seems to be so little accountability these days. And the Clarence Thomas issue, when ProPublica broke that story, I was just absolutely astounded. I read the whole thing and the fact that he's fine with meddling into the affairs of women in terms of abortion or in LGBTQ rights, but he never saw fit to tell anybody that he had been accepting over a 20 year period lavish vacations and private airfare from Harlan Crow, this wealthy Texas developer who happens to love dictator statuary and and Nazi memorabilia. And I think that there are no ethics standards on the Supreme Court. This is the most important body in the country per capita in a certain way. I've never had a lot of respect for Clarence Thomas before this or, or his wife, and I have even less now. And I'm sure a lot of Americans feel the same way. And I was glad that he was caught out on it.
0: Yeah. I mean, as you also note, the man has been magnificently silent for the
2: last couple of decades. I don't think he's had an oral comment in the Supreme Court in two decades.
0: Well, someone who also was in the courtroom, this or at least in, in the courthouse, giving testimony was our old friend Donald Trump.
2: No, I mean, he's going to be spending a lot of time in courtrooms. And I love his little gesture with a tiny <laughs> fist outside Trump Tower when he's... Going downtown and he's got the. I've known him for like 35 years and he never had a squint before. He's this is something he's worked on in front of the mirror. Uh, He's trying for Clint Eastwood, but he's looking more Zoolander than that. And like some blue steel. And it just looks like he's constipated before he heads off. I know he thinks it looks like resolve and strength and a strong man. Look, it doesn't work on me.
0: If you were going to see this playing out, how do you see it playing out for him with Stormy Daniels and all that over the next couple of months? He also has a rape trial coming up as
2: well. He's got multiple trials. He's got the Eugene Carroll rape trial coming up. I spent two hours in the Connecticut DMV the day after Trump spent eight hours being interrogated. That drained me. I can only imagine what eight hours of being grilled by lawyers did to Trump, I think at some point it's going to wear him out, and he's gonna start losing. He's been really lucky so far, and I'm hoping that the, the tables have turned on unaccountability and that a lifetime of sort of, it's not grifting so much, but just a absolutely horrendous behavior towards others, both financial and otherwise, will come to get him in the end.
0: It's a sloppy storyline, not as neat and tidy and elevated as Succession, which you also touch on in your column this week.
2: It's got to drive Trump crazy that the Murdochs get this really glamorous, sort of classy treatment on HBO. And the Trump story is far more in line with Jersey Shore or Milf Manor or Keeping Up with the Kardashians. But then I realized the Kardashians are actually quite quite a well-connected, a civil family compared to the Trumps. The Trumps don't deserve the Kardashian treatment.
0: No, the Kardashians take care of the brand.
2: Take care of the brand. And they're not swabbling. I mean, as opposed to like the poor Trump children, who I've always felt sorry for.
0: You compare them to children of other dictators who have not done so well. I love calling them Luda and
2: Kusei. Donald Jr. and
0: Eric. Well, let's speak of the Trump brand because the second installment this week, as well as the quote unquote magazine, which was sprung from your mind, can you read reveal that for the listeners
2: this week? Yeah, no, no, it's funny, because about five months ago, I woke up in the morning, and I thought, wait, magazine, why hadn't anybody thought of that? So I wake up, it's like 7.30, I Google to see if anybody's taken that, and I think, no, I was right. So we pulled together a lot of old spy magazine hands, and Bruce Handy and Julia Vitali edited it, and we did part one a few months back, and we've got part two this weekend, and I just think this, this will be an ongoing project until Trump just sort of winds down and completely collapses. But the fact that he never thought of having a magazine, I find extraordinary. And all those little sycophants around him.
0: You'd think that would be the perfect thing for him to get the Sharpie out and sign his cover of a magazine and get people on site to donate a hundred dollars for
2: one issue. Exactly. Exactly. It was a great thing by John Ficarra, who is not a spy magazine hand, but was the former editor of Mad Magazine, just about the Trump's funeral arrangement. The arrangement for his memorial. And I think it's funny. And I think it's, anyway, it's part two. And we'll probably be doing a part three within a few months.
0: I mean, God forbid he gets the nomination, but it just reminds me like back in the day, they would sell the fake New York Times outside of the convention when it was in New York. And you could sell magazine at the Republican convention up in Milwaukee this year. (laughs)
2: Look, I think his supporters would buy the whole thing. It's written in a certain way that if you're a Trump supporter, you think it's great. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's so over the top. Yeah, I think you'd think it was great. And the Ross McDonald illustration is like—I mean, they could not be more heroic. No, I know everything's heroic, everything's phenomenal, everything is fantastic. <laughs> so it's there to please everybody.
0: Well, I think that's a great note to end on because this interview pleases everyone, and it's been fantastic.
2: Mike, thank you, Nancy, and enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you, Graydon. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye bye.
1: That's delicious, Michael. The story that was not to be.
0: The testimony that was not to be, but it's always Graydon frames it and sums it up as no one else can.
1: All right. Well, where shall we go next, Michael? Shall we talk grifters or shall we talk about smoking? Thank you for smoking.
0: Let's go to smoking.
1: We've heard an awful lot about vaping, and now we're going to talk about smoking. There is a resurgence of artisanal cigarettes thanks to the launch of a new brand called Hestia. Zach Sokol, a writer based in New York, is here to tell us all about not only the product, but its perplexing and intriguing founder. Welcome, Zach. <laughs> Well, we are not lighting up, although we are sort of tempted after learning about the gentleman you refer to as the millennial Marlboro man. Tell us about Hestia, the first cigarette brand to get FDA approval in more than 15 years.
3: I first heard about Hestia actually exactly 10 years ago. I was a writer and editor at Vice at the time. And this guy, David Slay came to the office to try and evangelize and get coverage of his products, his homegrown tobacco brand, which at the time was not actually a cigarette. It was mini cigars because, and I can get into this in a second. It's extremely complicated to get a new cigarette into the American market. But I found this guy very interesting and I thought it was a particularly lofty ambition to try and start any type of tobacco brand as a self-funded indie operation. Ten years later, literally as past fall, all of a sudden I started noticing around New York at all these parties, Hestia, the brands that he had created, but finally existing as a true cigarette classic 20 cigarettes per pack and all these kids at various parties around New York were smoking them. And I was like, I know that name seems familiar. It'd been 10 years. I went through my email and dug up David's contact and reached out and I was like, wow, we finally were able to create your dream cigarette. Let's talk. And the story ended up being more interesting and complicated than I thought it'd be because again, the regulations of starting a cigarette brand are extremely extremely restrictive. And it's almost as if just being task to try to be an entrepreneur in this this type of market. What I found interesting in particular is that this one, pretty much one man indie cigarette operation was embracing marketing and promotion tactics that are almost diametrically opposed to what we think of when we think of tobacco advertising. There's no Joe Camel, there's no Flick, Rolling Stone or other publication. There's no full bleed print ads that make smoking look sexy. All the rules have changed. So I was curious about how he was taking almost modern direct-to-consumer marketing tactics, similar to, say, parade or Gia, and applying it to advice that many people think is inherently evil.
1: I want to talk about what differentiates the cigarette, because when I was first reading your story, you describe it as sort of making bespoke or craft cigarettes that use natural tobacco. And I thought, what is the difference between this and an American spirit?
3: That's interesting, because at one point, when he was trying to actually get his cigarette, his dream cigarette sanctioned by the FDA, there's only two ways you can do it. During the Obama administration, the FDA takes over tobacco regulations from the ATF and they essentially established the 2009 Tobacco Control Act. This says that a new product can only be introduced to the American market for two methods. First is you have to do either a hyper meticulous review, which can take years and years for the FDA to approve. And I believe that only a handful if any tobacco products have actually been approved through that method. And the other is to prove that your product is substantially equivalent to a cigarette that existed prior to 2007. Originally, he actually gets the recipe, the secret formula League, from American Spirit through an affidavit where they had all the recipe of how they made their tobacco. Still, the FDA does not approve him. So he eventually, and this is a little complicated, but He finds these brothers who essentially created a tobacco brand as a penny stock scheme, pump and dump play, and they got arrested for it. So he was able to acquire their company. And it turned out that the tobacco they were making was his dream product. It's almost identical to an American spirit in form, function, and flavor, but burns a bit faster because American spirits can take 20 plus minutes. So he acquires this kind of like sham company, but... That coincidentally had his ideal tobacco product. And then 10 years after launching Hestia, can officially sell true cigarettes, no longer the mini cigars. And then as of November, he gets this approval and he's able to sell in four states only, which is Florida, Mississippi, Minnesota, and Texas. Still, those are fairly limited markets. So to drum up support and hype and try to get a user base before he can get national distribution, he starts embracing these, again, influencer, tastemaker, marketing tactics where he's just sending cartons and press packs to every cool kid with an audience in both New York and LA, despite not being able to legally sell here yet.
0: You say in your story, he spent $2 million of his own money. Where did he get $2 million? Does he have any other backers and what's the money behind it?
3: Yeah, it's a bit complicated. I mean, he did put $2 million of his own dollars into this company. He was a hedge fund trader and then a grain and commodities trader. And through that latter position, he got connected. started doing business trips to both Georgia and South Carolina. And there he gets connected with a bunch of several like fifth to eighth generation tobacco growers. He's always loved tobacco. It's been in his family. His grandfather used to either rolled his own cigarettes and smoked cigars, and he's always been an aficionado. So he wondered why cigarettes couldn't have the same elegance to them the way that cigars that his grandfather smoked had. For the most part, yes, he invested his own money. When it was a mini cigar brands, he was able to export to, I believe he was sending it to like UAE or Dubai, as well as some European countries, and that helped keep him afloat. But once he was able to make the pivot to a tobacco brand, since he's only able to sell in those four states right now, mostly he's running on his self-funding and really, really trying to get this national distribution so we can eventually go into the black because time is a ticking. And if he doesn't get that national distribution by the end of the year, he might not be able to afford to keep the company going.
1: How do you think this relates to vaping? Is vaping in decline? And so do you think that the return to sort of a natural cigarette is a counterpoint to
3: that? Well, there is tons of research that shows combustible cigarette use is in perpetual decline. David's whole thing is that he believes if people are going to smoke, they should prefer a premium craft product. I think of it as a comparison to natural wine. He even says, this is not a cigarette for smokers, it's more for a cigarette for people who only smoke when they drink, or he even described it as cigarettes for smokers who don't even call themselves smokers. So his whole idea is that when and if you do indulge, you should value something that is premium quality and made ethically in small batches with trusted farmers. And he's really pushing for that artisanal bespoke aspect at the same time, though, you have to remember the pack itself says Hestia cigarettes are not safer than other cigarettes. I think it's also really funny that, again, he is really embracing modern DTC millennial advertising methods. So he has like a meme page. There's a Hestia tobacco Instagram page. Then he created a Hestia intellectuals page, which is just all memes and jokes and kind of like anti-vaping gags where he says God hates vapes or memes like that. And then he'll do photoshops of his moonshot consumers, people that he wants to smoke Hestias. And they're convincing photoshops. So it'll be like Pete Davidson holding a pack or Anya Taylor-Joy. And it's funny, he's getting support from other memers. Like there's an account called Sigfluencers, which kind of celebrates celebrities who unabashedly smoke. And through all these meme communities, he is drumming up support and finding new potential evangelizers for his product.
0: It's a fascinating story. And I just feel compelled to say... Kids, smoking is dangerous. I agree. He will say that himself. He's
3: very self aware. He'll say that my products for people who care what they put in their body. And I know that sounds foolish in regards to a tobacco product, but if you are going to have a vice, it might as well be the most clean, pure, thoughtfully made vice. And he likes to use the quote and includes it on some of his branding from Abe Lincoln. Folks who have few vices have few virtues.
1: Well, it's a very provocative argument and one that we really enjoyed reading and talking to you about. So more to come on this for sure.
3: Thank you both for your time. Take care, man.
0: Mother's Day is just a few weeks away. Get her something exquisite and unforgettable. David Yurman, America's foremost luxury jewelry brand, was started by a sculptor and a painter. Every DY collection features artistic designs executed with the finest craftsmanship and hand-finished details.
1: The David Yurman Mother's Day campaign, Forever Linked, celebrates the enduring bond between mothers and their children.
0: David Yurman has curated a variety of necklaces, rings, bracelets, and earrings in their online Mother's Day shop at davidyurman.com. Whether it's classic cable designs, personalized amulet pendants, or... A stunning Carlyle collection piece. Explore heirloom-worthy styles at a variety of price points.
1: There's something for every mom. Modeled by actor Scarlett Johansson and other brand ambassadors, this is jewelry your mother will treasure forever. Discover the selection now at davidyerman.com. All right, Michael, I am still not convinced to pick up a pack of these anytime soon, but you have to admit it is an intriguing business proposition. So it turns out even big banks make mistakes. And Tarpley Hit is here to tell us all about how JP Morgan made a very intriguing acquisition that it turns out wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Tarpley is a reporter and editor for The Drift. Welcome, Tarpley. <laughs> So, Charlie, this week you took a look at Charlie Javis. Quite a fall she's had. In 2011, she was one of Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business. And now she is experiencing a completely different fate. So who is she? Take us back.
4: So Charlie Javis is a Wharton graduate entrepreneur who has been involved in various startups since Effectively, she was a junior in high school in 2011, rather. She launched a nonprofit called up, which she'd been working on since even before she got to Wharton, that was aimed at, quote, alleviating global poverty through microfinance. The particulars of that, not particularly clear, but it did get her a lot of media attention. And she was a candidate for the Teal Fellowship. And then she sort of moved on from that project and started a new for-profit business called Frank. And Frank is a, basically a financial aid tool. It was whenever a kid is trying to get student loans or work study or grants, everyone has to fill out the FAFSA or the free application for federal student aid. And anyone who's filled out this application knows it's sort of a onerous process. And so Frank's promise was that it was going to simplify this process that you could apply for FAFSA through them. And then it came with all these other associated perks, like they were offering classes and other education related benefits. And so Frank's promise was that you could apply for financial aid through them and get all sort of a range of other side benefits like classes, like other stuff. And in sort of selling this financial aid tool. They were attracting students who would sign up for a Frank account. So that means, well, there's some debate over what exactly that means. But a Frank account typically involved a first name, last name, phone number, email. And the central dispute around Charlie Javis is how many people gave Frank their emails.
1: And do we have a sense of how many that could be? Like, what kind of okay. scale are we talking about? So the central
4: dispute is that in 2021, over the summer of 2021, J.P. Morgan Chase one of the world's largest banks. Frank approached JPMorgan Chase, but at a certain point, the talks got to a level where JPMorgan Chase wanted to acquire Frank. And they claim that Frank misled them as to how many emails they effectively had. And in the end, JPMorgan Chase did buy Frank in September 2021 for $175 million. And so the legal cases now are whether or not that transaction was fraudulent. So what JPMorgan Chase claims is that Frank told them that they had 4.25 million users, where they were defining users as someone who had given them their name, phone number and email. They claim that when they tried to test that email, that email list effectively by sending a sample to 400,000 of the students, sending a sample email to them, that only 103 students actually opened the email. So they were like, well, clearly we did not buy 4.25 million emails if only 103 people are opening these messages. How many emails do we actually have? They claim that when they opened an internal investigation, that they found that Frank, in fact, only had slightly fewer than 300,000 actual students' What's given their emails. So they were like, well, OK, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not what we paid for at all. And Frank, on the other hand, claims that they were always transparent about the fact that they really only had roughly 300k users. They claim that J.P. Morgan Chase mixed up users, in quotes, from user signups, and that they'd always had 300,000 user signups. So it's effectively a, a dispute over, did Frank lie about their customer base?
0: So this is fascinating because let's just put some names as Jamie Dimon, head of the bank, right? One of the smartest men in the world. He basically helped save us from Silicon Valley bank meltdown and these other things. How does this bank get into trouble and how do we end up in a world where now you've got, she's arrested earlier a couple of weeks ago. She's charged with brazen scheme to defraud JP Morgan Chase. How does a bank like this make an error like this? That's a great question
4: (laughs) (laughs) and definitely one that poses some questions about JPMorgan Chase's due diligence process for sure. If you ask Jamie Dimon about it, it was a colossal mistake and they were defrauded, etc. If you ask Charlie Javis about it, it's impossible that JPMorgan Chase could not have known that Frank ultimately only had 300,000 users and that they have sort of changed their tune in an attempt to claw back the money from the deal. I think it's plausible that it's somewhere in the middle that some context here is that during 2021, JP Morgan was in a absolute, quote, acquisition spree. I believe that's what Financial Times called it, where they acquired a majority or larger investment stake in 45 different companies in 2021 alone. And by the next year, that number was closer to 85. And so a U.S., national U.S. regulator, the comptroller of the currency, has scheduled an audit into specifically J.P. Morgan's acquisitions between 2021 and 2022, and specifically the due diligence process in terms of assessing the financial stability of these companies. And the Charlie Javis situation is going to play a prominent role, even though the audit was technically scheduled before the frank lawsuits. This whole ordeal is going to play a huge role because it definitely does raise some serious questions about how one of the largest banks in the world with some of the most impressive set of resources for digging into a company's financials could have missed this like absolutely critical detail about their perspective acquisition.
0: For me, it also is, it's amazing because now it seems they're contending that you have their chief growth officer, a person named Olivier Amar, basically, according to them, quote, create fake customer details using synthetic data techniques. I mean, I just want to point out, they sent a half million emails and 103 were opened. I'm no math major in college, but that's astounding that it seems like it's such a simple f- alleged fraud, right?
4: Yeah, it's not a good email click-through rate for sure. So there's three legal cases at issue here. JP Morgan and Chase sued Charlie Javis last year. Charlie Javis responded by suing JP Morgan Chase. So there's a claim counterclaim playing out in civil court. Then in April, Charlie Javis was arrested on the evening of April 3rd in New Jersey by the Department of Justice Southern District of New York and charged with four counts of like, bank fraud, wire fraud, security fraud, and conspiracy to commit fraud. And then the following day, the Securities and Exchange Commission unsealed another case against Javis, alleging many of the s- similar things. So things do not look amazing for Charlie Javis at this particular moment. She's bonded out. She's returned it to Miami. She's awaiting all of those cases playing out in court. But at the crux of all of these various cases is the question of What was this list of 4.25 million student supposed users and how did it fool JP Morgan, basically, or allegedly fool JP Morgan? So JP Morgan and Chase allege that when they asked her to provide evidence that she had 4.25 million customers, that she did not have that number of customers at all. And so she instead, along with her CGO, approached a data science professor in New York who is anonymous, who's not named in any of the complaints, and asked him to fabricate the list for her. And the civil complaint certainly, as well as the others, quote from email exchanges between Javis and the data science professor, where it sounds pretty explicitly like Javis is asking the data professor to fabricate this list. At one point, he asks, should I fabricate them? And she says affirmatively that she just doesn't want the street to not exist in the state that they're attributing to the student in question. So they're saying she made up this list. That's why when we sent all these emails, only 103 were open. She counters that, in fact, J.P. Morgan had known that this list was fake the entire time.
1: Tarpley, she's a young woman. She's only 31 years old. I mean, clearly she's got quite the tarnished history, but is there a path forward for her? Where do we find her now? And what's the immediate and long-term future looking like? She
4: posted bail in New York for $2 million, $2 million bond guaranteed against her Miami Beach home, which I believe was $1.4 million. She has returned to Miami and she's basically awaiting awaiting trial. There were some recent filings that suggested that she had been moving money to a shell company in Nevada called Chariot X Holdings LLC. So still some lingering questions about what she's doing with the money from the merger. I believe she has denied the accusations, but it's basically going to play out in the system. Certainly the fraud charges that the DOJ has filed against her can come with some hefty prison sentences.
1: Well, Tarpley, thank you so much for joining us. Great story. Great reporting. Oh, thank you.
0: Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me. The weekend has arrived. My number one recommendation is that everyone come to London and celebrate the coronation with me. But in the absence of that possibility, we do have a few things you can do from the comfort of your own home. Michael, what do you have?
0: Okay, I'm Happy to say i found my latest adrenaline fix in a new limited series that just dropped on Netflix called The Diplomat. Have you seen it, Ashley?
1: No, I haven't. God, I'm such a loser. Sorry, tell me. Okay,
0: you're going to love it because it's set in London. Great sort of scenes in London, but it stars Carrie Russell in her first big TV role since The Americans ended, and I think she's terrific in it. She plays a longtime State Department operative who gets this surprise appointment as ambassador, U.S. ambassador to the U.K., and there's plenty of wrinkles, beginning with the fact that she gets slotted into this post just after a British naval ship is attacked in the Persian Gulf. And then there's her husband, played by Rufus Sewell, who is also a former ambassador and political operative. And he has his own complications and agenda. So it's fast-paced, super intricate, and it unfolds against us in London, Washington, and points in between. But what I think realized was like, who made the show? I looked it up, of course. Deborah Chan is a woman's name who cut her teeth as a writer on the West Wing and worked on Homeland. So it's also no surprise you have all this Aaron Sorkin-esque run-and-gun dialogue. So, Ashley, I'm going to encourage you to watch it. It's called The Diplomat, and it's an excellent little thriller, and it's out now on netflix and you my dear
1: okay well speaking of netflix are you watching beef
0: yeah we need to talk about beef what do you think
1: everyone's got to talk about Beef. i mean i love Beef. this is again a new comedy drama on netflix from the korean director lee sung jin it stars ali wong and stephen Yun as two individuals who meet in the parking lot of a home improvement store there's a little bit of road rage involved and all of a sudden they become important fixtures in each other's lives i love this show it captures the world of design very well for those of us who know people in this universe it's fascinating and a bit of a send up but not only does it show how destructive anger can be but it also shows how hopeless we are to avoid it right like this is the universe we live in it's a universe of constant conflict and confrontation a lot of fun to watch and it also makes you think really deeply about the way that strangers can become such important parts of our
0: lives yeah terrific show keeps you on edge and makes you think like oh my god please let me get a control of my emotions otherwise I'm gonna end up in some pretty bad places
1: yes indeed all right well thank you all so much For joining us. We'll see you back here next week for another episode.
0: We'd also like to thank our sponsor for the week, David Yerman.
1: Michael, will you please read us out?
0: The meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. And Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis. And our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us. Okay.